everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Pensburg Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Bahanna. Alongside me once again, fellow Pensburg writer, Robbie Noggle. Robbie, how have you been? I've been good yet. And uh, Robbie, for the last couple of weeks, we have uh, we've been talking about it and hypothesizing about it, and now it is officially official. The Pittsburgh Penguins have officially clinched their spot for the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, this will be the Penguins' 15th straight year uh, heading into the Stanley Cup playoffs to battle for Lord Stanley's Cup. Uh, that is quite the incredible feat. But uh, before we get to that point, we have uh, we have some uh, we have some hockey to talk about. We'll start with our recap segment here with the last couple of games the Penguins have played. And we'll start with the game against the Washington Capitals from April 29th, 2021. Uh, the game that the Penguins would win by a score of 5-4 to four in overtime. And this win would be the win that would give the Penguins their, their official playoff ticket to the 2021 playoffs. So uh, let's dive in and start the recap here. TJ Oshie at the 727 mark of the first period gets Washington on the board on the power play. They get out to a one nothing lead. But uh, at the 1527 mark of the first period, Kasperi Kapanen gets his ninth goal of the season. He answers back for the Penguins, finds the equalizer, and the first period ends uh, at uh, deadlocked at one, heading into the second period now. Frederick Gaudreau finds his name on the score sheet, gets his second goal of the season at the 8.32 mark of the second period. Pittsburgh now out to a 2-1 to one lead. However, that lead would only last for about 30 seconds as Dmitry Orlov would find the back of the net getting his eighth goal of the season. Washington equalizes once again. It is tied 2-2. Two to two. Former Penguins prospect Daniel Sprong gets his 11th goal of the season. At the 15.07 mark, Washington takes a 3-2 lead here. However, with just two minutes to go before the end of the second period, Zach Aston Race gets his ninth goal of the season. Pittsburgh and Washington head into the second intermission tied at 3. Kasperi Kapanen gets his second goal of the game, 10th of the season, at the 10.55 mark of the third period of play, Pittsburgh out to a 4-3 lead. However, Tom Wilson at the 19.45 mark, just 15 seconds to go, Tom Wilson gets the equalizer once again for the Capitals. The Washington Capitals tie this game up at four, and it would take overtime to settle this dispute between these two bitter rivals. Jake Gensel getting his 22nd goal of the season at the 2-11 mark of overtime. Pittsburgh gets the extra overtime point. They beat the Capitals. They win 5-4. to four. Robbie, they get get the playoff berth, like I uh, previously mentioned. The one thing that I would I would look at this game and say, Robbie, uh, I didn't watch too much of this game while it was live, uh, but I do recall Wilson tying this game up very late in the third. We may be singing a different tune had the Penguins held on and beaten the Capitals in regulation rather than giving them that extra point. The 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 way the division is currently sorted, I think Washington, uh, as things stand right now, as we record, uh, Washington still has the edge over the Penguins for first place in the division. But if the Penguins get that uh, get the regulation win instead of the overtime win, giving the Capitals that extra point, maybe it's a bit of a st- different story here that we're we're talking about this week on the podcast. Nevertheless, the Penguins get the win. They get the playoff berth. Robbie, what are your thoughts from the April 29th game against the Capitals? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to look at this game because it 
carries so much, not necessarily whether or not the Penguins are going to make the playoffs. We already knew they were going to make it. It was just a formality. But it will have a very important or could have a very important effect on how the seating ends up because right now, like you said, the Capitals are technically ahead of the Penguins on on points or ahead of the Penguins just because they have a game in hand, even though they're even on points. But it also took, even though the Penguins won, it took away a regulation win from the Penguins, which is the first tiebreaker. The Capitals have that edge as well. So if they are in a position where they lose the division by uh, either a point or if tied loses tiebreaker, you're going to look back at that game right there as one that they can't give away. That was that was in the bag. 15 seconds they had. Letang hit a post on an open net. Brian Rust uh, had a clear shot of the net, just needed to skate about another 10 feet. Uh, he would have been fine. It was just just uncharacteristic mistakes uh, from the Penguins that night that cost them that regulation win. They did get the win in overtime, sealed their spot in the playoffs, and kept them right in that chase um, for that division lead, and it's much better than uh, only getting a point out of it. So you, you, you take the positives that way. But overall, if it comes down to that single point or a tiebreaker, that game is going to stick out like a sore thumb um, come next week. So now the Penguins have to rely on their bitter rivals, cross-state rivals, maybe the Philadelphia Flyers. The Capitals and Flyers meet uh, on May 7th, tomorrow, May 7th. Uh, By the time this podcast goes out, it will be tonight, May 7th. But the Flyers and Capitals meet for a two-game set on the, uh, the 7th and the 8th. So if the Flyers can maybe do the Penguins a favor, maybe beat the Capitals in regulation once or twice, and we'll see what the Penguins can do as they finish out their regular season uh, with two games against the Buffalo Sabres. So that will be something to keep an eye on as as the regular season draws to a close. But we'll move forward now. Uh, the Penguins play the Capitals once again, this time on May 1st. And this was a pretty straightforward pretty straightforward game. I should bring up that uh, the, the two games that the Penguins played against the Washington Capitals, uh, both games, the Capitals were without Alexander Ovechkin due to injury. Uh, this this game, the Penguins win by a score of three to nothing. Uh, again, the Capitals are without Alex Ovechkin, so you wonder what kind of presence, what kind of difference his presence would have made had he been healthy and playing for the Capitals. Uh, the Penguins win this game again, uh, I mentioned, by a score of 3 to nothing. Brian Rust gets the scoring going uh, at the 2.56 mark of the first period. He gets uh, his 21st goal of the season, Pittsburgh out to a one nothing lead. They take that one nothing lead into the second period. Brian Rust, uh, 26 seconds into the second period, he gives the Penguins a two-goal advantage, his 22nd goal of the season. And Jeff Carter, right past the midway point of the second period, gets his 12th goal of the season, gives Pittsburgh a 3 nothing lead. And that would be all of the offense, all of the scoring that the Penguins would need. They shut out the Washington Capitals. Really, uh, Robbie, uh, outside of the scoring here, outside of Brian Russ's two goals, uh, the Penguins doing what they have to do. Again, I mentioned the fact that the Capitals are without Alex Ovechkin. Um, With these two games, the Penguins played against the Capitals. Looking at the way the the Penguins played the Capitals in these these recent two games, uh, I'm not sure how much of a difference Ovechkin would have made, but I'll go out on the limb and I'll say that 
This two-game sample size against the Capitals, while brief, uh, I was encouraged by many of the signs over these this two-game stretch. If the Penguins and Capitals do meet in the playoffs like many, uh, many expect them to, I don't know how much of a threat the Capitals would be to the Penguins. Now, that's not to say that the Penguins could sweep the Capitals in, in a four-game series or anything like that. But, Robbie, looking at uh, looking at these two games, at the end of the regular season, when you want to be firing on all cylinders, uh, it doesn't look, it didn't look like to me at least that the Capitals posed any sort of major threat. And again, they were out without, without Ovechkin. So maybe that, uh, maybe that is a little bit of a, a hindrance to the Capitals. Maybe you put an asterisk by it if he is healthy and in the lineup, but anyway, you slice it. The Penguins get two wins over the Capitals here towards the end of the regular season. And like we mentioned at the the top of the show, uh, if the Flyers do the Penguins a favor and and maybe beat the Capitals once or twice in regulation, you know, we could be looking at the potential division champion Pittsburgh Penguins. But uh, that's for a story for another time. Robbie, I'll hand it over to you and give any any, uh, thoughts you have from what you saw on the between the Penguins and the Capitals from May 1st. I have to agree that there was a lot to take away, good, a lot of good to take away from these two games, especially against a team that you very well could be seeing here in a couple weeks in the playoffs. Uh, the second game was a pretty clean affair for the Penguins. You got the shutout. Brian Russ scores twice, both unassisted, both very nice plays by him, uh, using his speed, uh, just kind of be, being the player that uh, it keeps surprising everyone i think at this point we probably shouldn't be surprised by brian rust but i can't help but continually be surprised by the kind of player he's turned into uh, from year to year it seems like he just keeps getting better and if this is a a series in the playoffs this turns out to be a second round series which is probably the most likely outcome uh, you have to be confident with with the penguins uh, would be taking him that series. I know the Capitals didn't have Ovechkin, they didn't have John Carlson, but hey, you gotta you gotta play with what you got. And the Penguins took advantage of a I guess weakened Capitals team, and and they turned it into six point or uh, four points. I know they gave the one away in the first game, but hey, what are you gonna do? You take your four points, you stay in that Eastern Division hunt, and you kind of do it in a fashion that says, hey, if you're gonna beat us, you're gonna have to play your absolute best hockey. Uh, every and if you can do that over a seven game series, it, it good for you. But it, I don't know if the Capitals are built to beat the Penguins in seven games. And right now, I think the only team that's really beat to build the Penguins in seven games might be Boston. But I guess we'll find out soon enough. But overall, I think you got to be happy with what the Penguins showed in those two games against Washington. Absolutely. So that wraps up the season series uh, between the Penguins and Capitals. The Penguins would move on to a two-game set against their cross-state rival Philadelphia Flyers on May 3rd. And Robbie, this is uh, this game was not for the faint of heart if you're a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. Uh, the Flyers winning this game by a score of 7-2, to two, and the Flyers would get out to a Four nothing lead before the Penguins would find the score sheet. So let's get down into the nitty gritty here. Kevin Hayes gets the scoring going at the 5:58 mark. Philadelphia out to a one nothing lead. Shane Goss to spare at the 14:08 mark of the first period on the power play gives Philadelphia a two nothing lead. Claude Giroux gets his 15th goal of the season at the 15:12 mark. Philadelphia now leads three goals to zero. Uh, into the second period now, Wade Allison getting his second goal 
of the campaign at the 750 mark Philadelphia out to a 4-0 lead and uh, Philadelphia would take this 4-0 lead into the third period of play Sidney Crosby would break the shutout for the Flyers here get the Penguins on the scoreboard with a power play goal his 21st of the season Philadelphia still leading comfortably by three goals Four to one remains the score. Jason Zucker getting his eighth goal of the season. Uh, on the also on the power play, Philadelphia still leading the game, albeit Pittsburgh cutting into that lead. Philadelphia is still leading by a score of four to two. Maybe there's a little bit of hope here for the Penguins, getting two goals in the third period of play. However, Joel Farabee getting his 17th goal of the season at the 11:37 mark restates the Flyers' three-goal advantage. They lead the Penguins by a score of 5-2. to two. Claude Giroux getting another goal at the 17-39 mark. It's 6-2. to two. Philadelphia, Robert Hag getting his second goal of the season at the 18-55 mark. Uh, it's 7-2. That, that would be the final score. Again, Philadelphia beating the Penguins 7-2. Uh, Robbie, on paper, you look at the score line and you think, geez, uh, the Flyers are... Nowhere close to playoff contention. They're officially eliminated. But uh, this is something we talked about last week, uh, the possibility of teams playing spoiler to the Penguins. And the Flyers don't have a lot to play for at this point. Uh, They will be on the golf course sooner rather than later, but they still have a job to do. uh, And that job is still to win hockey games. And they did just that, getting seven goals past the Penguins here. They have 45 shots on goal. They win 68% of their face-offs. They go one for three on the power play. Uh, So, Robbie, again, we we talked about this in the past. Teams like the Sabres or the Devils or the Flyers in this case, they still have things to play for even if they're not going to the playoffs. They play spoiler. Obviously, a game between the Penguins and Flyers comes with that built-in animosity or heat or whatever you want to use to describe it. Philadelphia just simply gets the better of the Penguins here, and it was evident in the scoreline. It's evident in the shots on goal department, the face-off department. Just a, just a complete performance by the Flyers here. Nothing you can really take away. I guess there might be a couple positives to take away if you're a Penguins fan, but the Flyers do what they have to do. They just, they just simply get the better of the Penguins here. What are your thoughts from this May 3rd contest between the Penguins and Flyers? This is one of those games it feels like that the a team, even as good team as good as the Penguins, just spits out every once in a while. And these these just are games that happen. You you would hope that it's just a blip on the radar, and as we'll see in the next game, it looks like it was just that. Um, there's not really much to say. I mean, again, the Flyers, nothing to play for. I Yeah, I'm, I have to agree that they definitely still have something to play for, especially against uh, your biggest rival, and they can play spoiler this weekend against the Capitals as well. So let's hope they cross our fingers and hope they try to do that. But yeah, I mean, you're never, these are still professionals. They're, they're getting paid to be there. There you want to play spoiler. There's still stuff on the line. There's pride on the line. Uh, They're just trying to get through the season, but they're going to try to play spoiler as much as possible. So it was just an ugly game. The Penguins kind of try to claw their way back in it. In, in the third period, I think the biggest positive, if there is one to take away from this game, is that that first line, uh, Crosby especially, kind of got back on track a little bit. They, Crosby hadn't been looking his best, but he kind of uh, turned around and uh, got on the score sheet here in this game and kind of just got that groove back a little bit. So overall, you just kind of take your bumps and move on to the next one. And 
what was nice about this is they didn't have to wait long to get the bad taste out of their mouth as they were no. back on the ice. They were back on the ice the very next night. Yes, uh, closing out a back-to-back set. So the Flyers score the touchdown and kick the extra point in the first game, and the Penguins would answer the call. They would score a touchdown, and they would kick the extra point as well. Uh, the Penguins win this game against the Flyers by a score of 7-3. to three. And let's get the scoring summary here. Marcus Pedersen, of all players, Robbie, you don't expect the the, the name Marcus Pedersen to come out of my mouth very often, but he finds the net at the 144 mark of the first period. His second goal of the season gives Pittsburgh a one to nothing lead, and they take that into the first intermission, heading into the second period. Now, Jake Gensel on the power play at the 310 mark of the second period gets his 23rd goal of the season. Pittsburgh stretches their lead out to two to nothing here. Sidney Crosby uh, gets the Penguins a three-goal advantage, his 22nd goal of the season at the 544 mark. Justin Braun, however, will get his first goal of the season and break the Penguins' shutout here, uh, getting the Flyers on the board at the 821 mark of the second period. Pittsburgh still leading by a score of 3-1. to one. And Sean Couturier getting his 16th goal of the season right at the end of the second period. Uh, heading into the second intermission, Pittsburgh clinging on to a 3-2 to two lead. However, uh, we enter the third period now. Jason Zucker looks to give the Penguins a much-needed insurance goal, his ninth goal of the season at the 7.49 mark. But Travis Connect the answers right back about three minutes later, and Pittsburgh still maintaining a one-goal lead at this point. However, that would be the last Philadelphia Flyers goal of the night, Sidney Crosby gets his 23rd goal of the season at the 12:33 mark Pittsburgh out to a 5 to 3 lead over Philadelphia Mark Friedman gets the empty netter I do believe it was gets his second goal of the campaign at the 15:53 mark Pittsburgh out to a 6 to 3 lead and John Marino getting the seventh and final goal on the power play his third goal of the season at the 16:57 mark of the third period again Pittsburgh wins this one they answer back and they beat the Flyers by a score of seven to three so they score seven in the first game Pittsburgh looks at that they say anything you can do I can do better they score seven goals of their own the very next night uh Robbie looking at this game Sidney Crosby gets two goals you were talking about it before we talked about this game Sidney Crosby looking to break out of that funk that he had been in for the last couple of weeks uh, I want to talk about the Mark Friedman empty net goal just briefly. Uh, Friedman getting the goal against his former team, and uh, was it uh, who? Uh, Robbie, Shane, you remi- Shane, Go- Shane Gostespierre. Thank you, Robbie. It was Shane Gostespierre uh, boarding his former teammate Mark Friedman right after he scored the goal, and it was late, Robbie. I mean, if you remember. After he scored the goal, Friedman's starting to skate away. It was really late after he scored the goal. Friedman gets boarded by Gostaspare, and Gostaspare later has a hearing with the Department of Player Safety, and we will surely talk about the Department of Player Safety uh, safety here momentarily. But uh, Gostaspare gets handed a two-game suspension for boarding Friedman here. Uh, other than other than that, Robbie, uh, it, it's a it's a story of the Penguins giving up seven goals and then scoring seven goals on their hated rival. But uh, 
like you said, Robbie Crosby snapping out of this funk. That's good to see. Jake Ensel continuing to score goals. That's always a positive. Jason Zucker getting his ninth goal of the campaign. That's a positive as well. Uh, any other thoughts you'd like to add between uh, the Penguins and Flyers from May 4th, 2021? It just, it's a great, great uh, response game. And it's exactly what you want to see out of a team like the Penguins who are getting ready for a playoffs where you might have to bounce back quickly because you can't really afford it. It's tough when you lose two games in a row in the playoffs to win a series. The more you think about it, the more you do the math. So it's a good bounce back. They beat a team that they should have beaten. Uh, and it's always good to beat the pl- the Flyers, whether it's a game in January or a game in May or April or whatever. Um, it's it's always fun to beat the Flyers. There's never a bad time to beat the Flyers. So, uh, again, it gets back to Crosby scoring two goals. Gentz will get in the board. Jason Zucker uh, finally getting, getting a goal and starting to look like the Jason Zucker that uh, Penguins traded for last year. And... One thing that might fly under the radar is there was a point in this game where the Penguins looked like they might let go of a 3 nothing lead again against the Flyers, but they kept the foot on the gas just enough. They built a two-goal cushion. Yes, they lost that cushion not long after, but they didn't let that get them down. They responded once again and uh, put the game away, put the game on ice, uh, no pun intended. But... The Goss to spare stuff, it was a very bizarre situation because, again, Friedman was a – he is he came over from the Flyers early in the season. I think it was Ron Hextall's like, first move as Penguins general manager. They got off favors. Don't know if there's some weird bad blood there or, or what. It was a very odd uh, very odd happening, especially it's an empty net goal. The game's way out of reach at that point, and it – resulted in Shane Gossespierre being suspended two games, uh, which it's two of their final three games, I believe. So, or maybe it's their final two games of the season. I'm not sure exactly uh, where the Flyers sit games played wise, but yeah, it was just a very bizarre, a very bizarre instance. But, uh, and one thing I credit to Mike Sullivan is at the end of that game, he, after the Gossespierre penalty, uh, he could have just sent out a ragtag power play unit but he was clearly peeved by the move and sent out the the top unit and John Marino uh, lights a lamp and um, sets that final 7-3. Seven, seven, so overall, just a, another good performance, the kind of performance you want to see in a bounce-back type game uh, makes you feel a little bit better about the night before. That's a good point, Robbie, and it's something that I'd like to see from Mike Sullivan. Uh, I've always been uh, of the mindset that if something like that, what Goss Despair did to Friedman, if something like that happens, I don't know, seven or eight times out of ten, you'd see the, the team goon or enforcer try to come to his aid and maybe fight Goss Despair. And you might see the result of that kind of altercation uh, in, in terms of penalty minutes and guys in the penalty box. However, Mike Sullivan, like you said, throwing out that top unit out there, and he wanted he he answered. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He he solved this problem, and like you said, he he was pissed off by it. He uh, clearly getting the goal on the power play to end the game there. That's what I I'd rather see. You know, something like that happen where a team scores on the power play and gives that kind of response than 
uh, you know, some goon or enforcer just trying to throw fisticuffs when the game's out of hand. That's the kind of thing I like to see. But anyway, uh, I'll digress as we head into our main segment here on uh, the podcast this week. Robbie, I want to talk about a, a, a player this week and this player's transformation from one-time complimentary NHL depth player to what I guess you could call premier NHL goal scorer these days. That player is none other than Brian Rust. Uh, I have a tweet here that I'd like to share with you and the listeners from fellow Pennsburg writer Adam Gretz. And he goes on to tweet, uh, this was from May May 2nd. This was a tweet from May 2nd. So the uh, the statistics that he lists in this stat may not be as accurate as uh, as things stand right now, but the point still still stands here. Brian Rust has scored 66 goals in his past 150 games. That is a 37-goal pace per 82 games. And uh, Robbie... So let's let's discuss Brian Rust here because I think Brian Rust has been uh, I don't know if you'd call him an unsung hero during this 2021 campaign, but over the last couple of seasons, it seems like Brian Rust has transformed his game. Like I mentioned, uh, he came up through the Penguins minor league system and became a contributor uh, for the Penguins uh, Stanley Cup runs a couple of years ago and has since found himself a permanent fixture of the top six, whether it be the first line or the second line. And Brian Rust's game at first, to me at least, was just a, a, a good player, a good puck position, puck possession player with speed. He, uh, he he has a positive impact on his teammates in relation to Corsi and his Corsi and Fenwick numbers, but he also has that that speed to burn, and he can score you a goal every now and again too. That always doesn't hurt when you're looking for contributions alongside Malkin and Crosby. But, Robbie, I want to take you back. We'll go back to the 2018-19 season, and uh, we'll we'll move forward in time, starting from the 2018-19 campaign. Brian Rust finishes sixth on the team in goals scored with 18 in 2018-19. And that was uh, Jake Gensel's 40-goal campaign. He would lead the team with 40 goals that year. But, uh, again, Brian Rust is sixth on the team with 18 goals in 2018-19. In 2019-20, he would lead the Penguins in goals with 27 goals, 29 points, or 29 assists, 56 points in 55 games played. And this season, he is currently uh, currently third on the team scoring list with 22 goals, 20 assists for 42 points. Only Jake Gensel and Sidney Crosby are ahead of them ahead of him with 23 goals to both of their names. So, Robbie, that's a long-winded explanation to show the evolution of Brian Rust's game going from complimentary speedster to, it looks like, very consistent goal scorer. And I don't know, Robbie, if you thought Brian Rust was capable of such a transformation. You know, typically... If you see a goal scorer like a Patrick Laine, uh, you know, uh, your, your prototypical sniper, he's only known for one thing, and that's putting the, the puck in the back of the net. It's typically something that is with you from day one. But in Brian Rust's case, he's in his age 28 season, and only over the last couple of seasons has he started to come onto the scene and score these goals in bunches. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts, Robbie, because Brian Rust has become 
such an integral player in this top six due to his goal scoring ability. How do you think Brian Rust has transformed his game seemingly overnight going from depth player that can score you a goal here or there with speed to becoming one of the team's top goal scorers year in and year out? That's a really good question. And he's such an interesting player to look at because Brian Russ is not a guy, or at least when he came into the league, to never look like a guy that was going to be the Brian Russ we know today. Scored some very big goals for the Penguins in 2016, 2017, obviously. But he always kind of had a, I guess, a Max Talbot-type player vibe to him. I mean, he's very fast, unbelievable speed. But he just seemed, there's just some guys that have a nose for the net, and he's one of those guys. He finds a way to score. He has a great shot. And sometimes guys, when they find the perfect chemistry and perfect line mates, everything just clicks. And that's kind of what happened for Rust. And it's great to see because he's been such a valuable, important component to what the Penguins have done in the past and what they're doing right now. And should they make a deep run this year, he's going to be a very valuable piece to that puzzle because of everything he brings to the table. He plays without fear. He is he's relentless on the puck, on the forecheck. And he can score. He works well with Crosby and Gensel, uh, even in their ups and downs like they've gone through recently. He's just, he's so valuable with what they do. He blocks shots. The goal he's, one of the goals he scored against the Capitals came directly off his own block shot. Uh, and then he just blew away from the defense. He has great hands. And he's just, he's such a interesting player to dissect because nothing about him screams NHL goal scorer. And it just sometimes you hit on him, and that Penguins hit on um, quite a few guys like Rust, and Rust is the one that sucked around the longest. So it's something great to see. We love to see it, and it, we just hope it continues because he's. It's hope he stays around a while for at least as long as Crosby's around because something about him, him Gensel and uh, Crosby just clicks, and it's great to see, and it's so important to what the Penguins want to do. Yeah, uh, you brought up the fact that uh, he's he, he's he's become cemented in Penguins history because of uh, the, the, some of the clutch goals that he scored in the postseason. And you bring up the fact too, you like him to stick around for as long as Crosby is here. And the, this leads me into a question that um, I, I didn't put in the outline for you, Robbie. It's something that just came to me spur of the moment. We don't have to talk about it too much before we head into the mailbag segment. But I'm kind of curious now, what will Brian Rust's next contract look like? Because he has a $3.5 million cap hit uh, through the end of next season. And then he's an unrestricted free agent for the first time in his career in his age 30 season. And uh, depending on how you look at constructing rosters, you may look at a guy who's 30 years old and say, okay, let's be careful and not hand out like a five or six year contract to a 30 year old, because more often than not, you're not going to get that return on investment. And typically as guys get older, their play starts to decline. It's just the natural progression of things. So I'm curious myself how the Penguins will handle a potential Brian Rust extension uh, in the future. Ravi, I don't know if you have any thoughts that have come to your mind just like that when talking about 
Brian Russ's next contract. It was just something that popped into my head as you were concluding making your point there. Definitely going to be something to watch for, I think, out of all of the players that the Penguins are going to have to re-sign in the near future. I have to think Brian Rust may be up there as one of the top priority signings that the Penguins look to lock down. Yeah, I absolutely think it will be because, again, depending on what the status of the team is uh, next summer, who it's really, I mean, there's obviously a lot of factors. Um, the thing is, when he is coming off the book, so is Evgeny Malkin. What's Malkin's next contract going to look like um, is another thing they definitely have to consider. Uh, but Brian Russ, he will be 30. You have to be careful not to just brink truck him a bunch of money because, I mean, 30, that's on the – again, that's usually when players start to dip down a little bit. Uh, but who knows with him? And if he's as long as he's playing with Crosby and Crosby is effective, I think it's going to be very hard to uh, not pay him. And, again, interesting decisions. He can be re-signed this summer um, as a uh, – once that he enters his final year of his contract, I believe July 1st. Well, I don't know what the years or how it's all going to work out this year because of the way the season went, but he will be eligible to, to sign a new deal this year. Whether or not the Penguins get at that, I, it's Ron Hextall's team now, so we'll have to see exactly how he handles that. But I, I think Brian Ross is going to be a Penguin for a little, a little while longer, even after next season. All right, that'll be something, surely, that we will keep an eye on uh, as, as the weeks and months go by as we head into the offseason. But now we will flip our attention to the mailbag segment. And for first-time listeners, long-time listeners, if you're interested in contributing to our weekly mailbag segment, you can do so by following our Pensburg Podcast Twitter account. Every week, we will send out a mailbag tweet asking for your participation in this mailbag segment. We love getting all sorts of crazy wacky fun questions and uh robbie this week's mailbag has a very specific theme to it and that theme uh relates to washington capitals forward tom wilson and uh for those who are listening to this podcast if you're not aware of what the latest tom wilson incident is i highly suggest you do some research if you haven't already heard about it it's become the talk of the hockey world and uh, I have a feeling that we're going to continue talk, continue to talk about this for the uh, coming days. I don't know if this is going to be something that's going to die down overnight because of the, the storm that it has seemingly caused throughout the NHL. But, Robbie, we'll, uh, we'll hand it over to you. You get the first crack at the mailbag this week, like always. The Battle on the Boards podcast is here with a question, and they ask this. Sam Lafferty seems willing to go up against Tom Wilson. If we play the Caps in the first round, or the second round for that matter, does he get the go-ahead over someone like Freddie Goudreau or Evan Rodriguez for this reason? If it's working with Rodriguez or Goudreau in the lineup, I I understand where they're coming from. Lafferty is definitely not afraid to stand up to Tom Wilson. He's not afraid to hit Tom Wilson. But I'm very much of the line of thought of if it ain't broke don't fix it and Lafferty is in my opinion below those two guys on the depth chart um if something happens where you feel like you need retribution maybe you throw Lafferty in but if it's game one or game two I'm personally a big no on uh, messing with your lineup just to 
I guess, quote-unquote, make a point. And overall, again, this goes back to the NHL just continually dropping the ball on Tom Wilson, that this keeps happening and that we have to keep debating whether or not we need enforcers or whatever. But no, in my opinion, no. It's it's not Sam Lafferty's spot in the lineup. It belongs to a guy like Goudreau or Erod that wants to uh, that plays the way the Penguins want to play, the plays the way Mike Sullivan wants to play, and can contribute offensively. Uh, nothing against Sam Lafferty, but the goal scoring just isn't there. I don't think it's ever going to come. But we've seen it with Goudreau. We've seen it with Rodriguez. If it, It's the playoffs. I understand you want to stand up for your guys, and the Penguins aren't the biggest team, but the best way to stand up for them is to go out there and score goals. And if Tom Wilson does something stupid, Hey, make them pay that way. But I, I, I know I don't think like a guy like Brian Burke thinks, but I just think that overall you need to try to beat the Capitals with their own game, not get too infatuated with Tom Wilson because that's kind of what happened to Jim Rutherford. He got so – Tom Wilson got so far in his head about the way he was treating the Penguins that um, uh, that it kind of re- – it screwed up the team. It screwed up his thinking. It kind of hurt the team for a couple years there when they were just so focused on uh, building the – fight Tom Wilson rather than building to beat the Capitals. Question number two comes from Commander Kern. I'm so mad about the Wilson thing because the Pens are probably going to play the Caps in the second round. What can the Pens do to protect our players, let alone superstars, against a player who doesn't respect the game or their safety? Should we draft a bruiser in in the offseason? This part is to keep reminding the Department of Player Safety fans do do not want to see any player crippled on the ice. I watched the game with my daughter. Where is respect for the players? You want to grow the game, grow up, and get Wilson out of the picture. Robbie, when I was uh, when I was uh, working on the outline to send to you, uh, every every week I'll just copy and paste the tweets from Twitter into my into my uh, into my email that I'll, I'll send to you, and I copy them verbatim. I don't I don't change anything. And Commander, if you're listening, which you probably are. Uh, he he posted this tweet with several times all caps, and it's great because it just it gives off the anger that not only Commander Kern here, but I'm sure a lot of Penguins fans and a lot of hockey fans are feeling too. There, there are a couple of different ways that I can take this question. Number one, Robbie, I agree with you uh, in the point that you were making with your last question. Uh, it's not 1975 anymore. There doesn't need to be a spot in the lineup on your fourth line for a guy who's 6'6", 230 pounds, and can't chip in anything offensively compared to a guy like Rodriguez or Goudreau who may chip in offensively and fits in better with what Mike Sullivan wants to do systematically with the speed and skill aspect of the game. So uh, Commander Kern asks... What should we do to stop a guy like Tom Wilson? Uh, the best thing to do is go out and score more goals. Exactly what Robbie said. Uh, I'm of the same mindset. Uh, the way to beat Tom Wilson is to beat the Washington Capitals, and that's to beat them on the score sheet, knock them out of the playoff series so that Tom Wilson doesn't harm you or anyone else. Uh, he asks, should we draft a bruiser in the offseason? Uh, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of hockey fan that tunes in 
to watch a line brawl between the Rangers and Capitals one second into the game. That's not the kind of hockey fan that I am. That's not the kind of hockey that I like to watch. I personally like the speed and skill aspect of it. I don't think there's a need for goons or enforcers in today's NHL. Uh, So I don't think, I personally don't think we need a bruiser. Uh, We don't need to spend a draft pick on a bruiser or anything like that. Uh, But Commander Curran brings up a couple of interesting points. Robbie, I think I brought this up to you on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when someone else asked a question regarding Tom Wilson, and they it was something along the lines of what uh, what would it take for the league to permanently ban a player like Tom Wilson? And I responded with, Tom Wilson is probably going to have to paralyze a player for life or... Uh, force a player into legitimate retirement because of what he does on the ice. Uh, I don't want to go so far as to say kill a player on the ice because that's incredibly morbid and nobody obviously wants to see that. But with the way the Department of Player Safety has handled things over the last couple of days in regards to this Tom Wilson drama, it seems to me, Robbie, and you can chip in here after after I get out of this question, it seems to me that the Department of Player Safety is just going to let Tom Tom Wilson get off scot-free. And it seems like they have no problem with this because the Department of Player Safety and the rest of the league, how it's constructed, are made up largely of the dinosaurs that played in the 70s and are still of that mindset that what Tom Wilson did, a lot of, a lot of those executives don't see anything wrong with that. And uh, they think that the game should just go on as, as it is. They have no problem with the line brawl between the Capitals and the Rangers. So they're just going to go about their business, which is why you saw the Department of Player Safety do absolutely nothing besides a $5,000 fine to Wilson after the, uh, the Buchnevich incident and the Paner- Panarin injury. So, Robbie, I'll get off my soapbox. I know this is a very hot-button hot topic right now, so if you want to come in and contribute here to what you think the, the, the league can do regarding Tom Wilson, uh, you're, you're more than welcome to, to hop in here. What can you say that hasn't been said already in exactly. the past five years, whatever it's been? Uh, with dealing with the Tom Wilson um, drama seemingly multiple times a season. It's just... um, I mean, I think the funniest part was, or maybe the most frustrating part was, the Rangers making that statement, pretty much calling out uh, the entire Department of Player Safety, and then getting a quarter million dollar fine as an organization... And then uh, Pavel Buchnevich getting suspended for high-sticking Anthony Mantha in the quote-unquote retaliation game uh, two nights later. Uh, that, to me, is... I, I don't even really know what what to say about it because, I mean, here you had Tom Wilson literally punching a guy's face into the ice and then tackling another one, and you have... Not to say that what he did was right and not say he shouldn't be suspended, but to give him a game for that with, I don't believe he had any history before that either that it's almost, it's comical and it's a farce uh, that, um, that that happens because I understand uh, the department of player safety. I mean, there's precedent uh, that you can set with stuff like this and you don't always want to set 
precedent every time you have to make a suspension. But when you have a guy like Tom Wilson, sometimes I think you have to take start making precedents uh, with with that. And one of the key areas that I don't think anybody's talking about, not that they have any say in the matter, is the NHL Players Association. Because, yeah, I understand that Tom Wilson is uh, one of yours, and he belongs to your to your um to your organization, and your job is to stand up for him and defend his rights as a player in the NHL. But every guy that he injures is also a part of your organization, and um, they're just kind of silent on the whole matter. I, I think there, I, I, I think that there has to be some fr- frustration amongst the players that, hey, at some point, uh, w- is something ever going to be done about about this? Because what happens if he goes out there and, and maims a guy to the point where he can never step on the ice again? That and but Tom Wilson can't. How's that fair to the to uh, player John Doe that? He loses his career and his paycheck because uh, there was a uh, rabid uh, zombie out on the ice just taking runs at everybody with no and knowing that there's going to be no uh, no consequences. And I, if until that's taken care of, I, it's just never going to change. It's going to be we'll hear about it. This I'm sure we'll hear about something uh, here in the playoffs at some point, whether it's against the Penguins or whether whoever they're playing, whatever this situation is. Uh, but and if not this playoffs, you're going to hear about it next season. It's it's going to be a a nasty cycle of Tom Wilson does something bad, everybody's mad, and department ser- safety drops the ball, and then that just repeats itself a couple weeks later. So it's it's almost not even worth wasting time getting mud and fresh, mud, mad and frustrated about it anymore because we've seen this happen so many times that it's just. It's become a farce. All right, we'll move forward. I agree with everything you said, Robbie. Uh, the more things change, the more things will stay the same. But question number three comes from Penshen, and they want to know, please tell me why a team losing by over one a one-goal margin will pull its goalie. Seems like this, this happens in every single game, and a punishment to the winning team. I compare it to a penalty for a job well done. It actually makes the losing team's goal differential worse, too. Um, I mean, yeah, it's rare that the goalie pull let, um, is going to bring you back from a multi-goal deficit. Um, it's, I guess it's just you're kind of putting out, uh, you're just kind of emptying the tank and doing whatever, it can, whatever you can to win. Uh, two goals, uh, sometimes you see, rarely see three, uh, unless it's a very desperate situation like in the playoffs or uh, a game that somebody has to win. Uh, so you don't really see that, but um, I don't know how it's a punishment to the winning team. But yeah, goal differential. I think it's thank goodness that goal differential doesn't mean anything in the NHL. It's I get it can kind of tell you about how a team is playing overall. Like if even if they're in a playoff position, but they have a negative goal differential, probably not. I mean, okay, they're playing well enough to stay there, but they're not exactly blowing the doors off anyone. But it doesn't mean anything like in soccer, goal differential is one of the um, very, uh, it's a, a very crucial tiebreaker in most in most leagues and stuff like that. But, I mean, it's just strategy. I mean, it's been done forever. I don't think if it's a two-goal, even a two-goal margin, I don't think you're ever going to get to the point, unless that second goal comes, like, in the, in the empty net or just at a weird time. I just don't think you're ever going to see that not happening because – you probably have a better chance of coming back with the goalie not with the goalie pulled than you do with the goalie not pulled. So 
it's just taking a chance, um, rolling the dice. Hopefully it lands. Hopefully it lands right, and you get the um, and you get the uh, the boost from the extra attacker. But it's really just more strategy and throw and emptying out the tank, uh, hoping for a miracle. Question number four comes from Yinzersaurus. Do people really not see the difference in what Tom Wilson in what Tom Wilson did and what Sid did? And the context on this is. Um, the Sid Travis Konechny um, incident in Thursday night's not Thursday night. What's today? Today's Thursday, Tuesday night's Tuesday. game, where they met in the got tangled up in the corner and got a um, a little tussle going on, and some uh, Capitals fans or fans of other teams were um, saying Crosby should be suspended because it was the same thing that Tom Wilson did when it clearly wasn't. So I'll let you have that. Yeah, Robbie, I uh, I saw some rather prominent figures on social media with some check marks by their name working for some pretty large publications a la ESPN. Uh, I, I saw a couple of a uh, couple of people compare the incidents and they're telling me as a uh, as a person on Twitter that those two incidents are exactly the same and Sidney Crosby should be punished for uh, basically getting in a wrestling match with Travis Konechny. Uh, look, I, I don't want to, I don't want to waste too much breath on this because we've already gone to great lake, great lengths to describe the Tom Wilson incident at this point. Uh, what, what I will say is that those high profile figures who are paid handsomely to talk about hockey on perhaps America's biggest sports network those those people who were paid to talk about hockey telling me that what Travis Konechny and Sidney Crosby got into is the same as what repeat offender Tom Wilson did it may in my opinion you lose all credibility if you're comparing and you could look at me uh, a writer for a Pittsburgh Penguins website who you could call a Pittsburgh Penguins homer you could call me that 10 times out of 10 just because I'm here telling you no, that there is a di- there uh, there is a difference between what Tom Wilson did and what Sidney Crosby did. Uh, the difference being Tom Wilson is a repeat offender for committing some of the same acts that he did against Artemi Panarin and Pavel Buchnevich. And when you look at a player like Sidney Crosby, has Sidney Crosby had emotional outbursts in the past? Yes, absolutely. You look at this Konechny incident, and people are so quick to point the gun at Crosby for what he did against P.K. Subban in the 2017 Stanley Cup Final when he repeatedly slammed uh, Subban's head into the ice. People are so quick to take these two incidents and say, well, why isn't Sidney Crosby suspended for 20 games for doing exactly what Tom Wilson did? Uh, I think there's a there's a difference between a repeat offender like Tom Wilson and a player who occasionally lets the emotion get the better of him like Crosby. And it's rare because, Robbie, you and I watch Crosby on a nightly basis compared to some other people that obviously don't, that Sidney Crosby largely keeps his emotions in check. And it's very rarely that uh, players will get under his skin to the extent that uh, a P.K. Subban or a Travis Konechny will. So uh, I think Sidney Crosby does have the thicker skin when it comes to comparing uh, Crosby and Wilson and their antics on the ice. But uh, Robbie, we have a question number five for you. 
we will wrap up this mailbag with question number five. This, uh, this question coming from Durham Bell. And uh, the question is three words. Tom Wilson, dot, dot, dot. Thoughts? Yeah, what more can you say at this point? Um, See, I, I saw, I forget who it was. It may have been, I can't remember. It was a check mark, but I can't, it wasn't, I um, can't remember who it was exactly, but it wasn't who we were talking about earlier. Uh, but he said that um, Tom, or any general manager in the NHL would kill to have Tom Wilson on the league. And I think people kind of took it as like, oh yeah, haha. I think that tweet perfectly encapsulated that that is 100% correct. That is the old boys mentality that are still running things in the NHL. That absolutely, that 31 other general managers would absolutely take Tom Wilson on their team. And I think that's part of the problem. And you can look at, at Department of Player Safety, and yeah, they deserve a lot of the blame for this continually happening. But the, as long as that old boys club, that old-time hockey mentality still exists, Guys like Tom Wilson are, one, going to exist and pretty much be completely free to do whatever they want with as little consequence as possible because that's just how they view the game. It was just a little tussle at the end of the game. It got a little rough, got a little out of hand. Nobody got hurt, though. Well, or Terry Panarin got hurt, but, uh, no, but hey, that's hockey. And, it, again, it's taken so long just for them to uh, get a – kind of firm grasp on how to penalize just dangerous hits. I mean, you had Matt Cook running around pretty much unhinged for many years until he got finally suspended for staple for stapling Ryan McDonough's head to the boards. And it cost him, I believe it was 17 games when you count the, um, the playoffs and all that. And that took him, he was running around doing crazy stuff for season for years before that. And that's, only 10 years ago. So you're looking at a league that's been around for over a hundred years. And it's only in the last 10 of, they started taking um, headshots and stuff like that more seriously. And yeah, you have your violent acts like uh, Marty McSorley and taking slashes to the head or um, Chris Simon stepping on a penguin's leg. I mean, yeah, that dangerous stuff, kicking with skates and stuff that was always going to get punished. Cause there's definitely no, there's definitely no, um, no tolerance for that, but the head hits, I mean, it's just been 10 years that they finally started taking it seriously and they still don't take it seriously enough. Um, after all these incidents that, uh, it's unfortunate that it, the only thing that might change it is uh, a very serious career altering injury. And you, I mean, that's kind of Matt Cook with Mark Savard. Mark Savard was never the same after that hit from Matt Cook in 2000 what was it, 10, I believe, uh, when he played for Boston. Uh, so, I mean, you have all those incidences that you hope that it doesn't come down to that, um, that it, it takes a serious career-altering injury, paralyzation, or something to that effect. Tom Wilson right now is is the culprit of a lot of this, and it's unfortunate that he keeps being able to just step on the ice every night with a little fear of anything, any kind of retribution or any kind of consequence from the league because um, he's kind of a protected, a protected citizen, even though he has been suspended in the past uh, because if they want to get serious about uh, this kind of stuff, it's going to take a serious, we're talking at this point, half season, full season suspension. That's the only thing that's going to fix it. 
Mario Lemieux famously uh, famously scoffed at the NHL back in the early 90s, calling the league at the time a garage league for what he believed was a, a lack of the league calling properly calling penalties. And, you know, he's been a, a, a longtime uh, a longtime proponent of banishing that kind of violence throughout the league. And that was one of the only things that I could continue thinking about over the last couple of days was Lemieux calling calling out the league, perhaps arguably the the league's biggest star at the time, Mario Lemieux, openly criticizing the league, calling it a garage league for the fact that viol- violence back then was still running amok. He believed that they still weren't calling penalties properly. And uh, the term garage league, I've seen that thrown around on Twitter over the last couple of days, Robbie. And it's it, it's going to be something that is going to be stuck in my head because every time you have an incident like this regarding a Tom Wilson or a, a, another dangerous player and the Department of Player Safety continues to uh, fail to do their job and, and fail to properly suspend these players for these dangerous hits, I'm going to continue to refer to it as a garage league. Uh, I'll call it the best sport and the worst league because that's what it is in my opinion. So, Robbie... Uh, it's been quite the emotional edition of the Pennsburg podcast, but uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap this episode up and get out of here? Uh, nope, I have nothing else. Well, that'll do it for you, Robbie, and that will do it for me. I have been Garrett Behanna for Robbie Noggle. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Pennsburg podcast, and we will see you next week. Next week.